tonight's reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is God's word. And I thank you. Uh, evening, everyone. But we're in uh, Matthew 18 for uh, three weeks. We began last week. We continue today. We'll finish next time. Let me pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, no one cares for the church like you. Some would have been thinking this morning here at church in Acts chapter 20, you are the one who views your church as so precious, you are willing to shed your blood for it. And Father, you cherish your church so much. What a privilege to gather as a dearly loved people, precious in your sight this evening, that you do want to protect it and you do want to warn and so, Father, as we come to a section of your word which talks about such things, would we understand them rightly? Not be overzealous, not be overly passive, but understand them rightly in order to love your people well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, in Cornwall, on um, holiday in August, I was going to take a boat out, and uh, a friend I was with, Said, all oh, tides, very tidal, you know, round here. Well, yes, I, I, I get that about the sea. Um, but very tidal, you know. Have you got all the equipment you need? Have you got all the safety equipment you need? Got a life jacket, that'd be all right. Um, but uh, then he went on to tell me the story of Simon Spears, which I'd not heard about. Uh, this was a British sailor in the, uh, the round the world clipper race, you know, so big boats, big boats, multiple crew uh, on them. And in 2017, in the Round the World Clipper race, he was tragically swept overboard and died. So apparently, uh, incredibly um, high winds and uh, waves, you know, just dramatic. You're thinking the perfect storm, that sort of film, very highly dramatic setting. Actually, four of the crew were swept overboard uh, in the waves. Three of them were uh, tethered on to the guardrails, you know, the little uh, wires that go around uh, on a big boat. So three te- were able to haul themselves back on. By the exception, Simon Spires not tethered on. And despite the fact the boat kept trying to tack, tack to get back to him, the conditions were such. And he lost his life, tragically. And uh, as I sort of sailed off mildly nervously, remembering having heard this story, it was fine, it, was, it wasn't that treacherous a day, um, just thinking... It's a bit like church, isn't it, really? Uh, Waves come in life. And if you're tethered on, that is, you're connected well, 
into a church family, well, it may hurt, it may be brutal, but you'll be all right. If you're not tethered on, if you're sort of just there, you sort of attend a bit, but aren't really connected in, well, when the wave comes, who knows? Who knows what happens? And the last six months, COVID-19 had been a pretty big wave. And churches up and down the land, in fact, across the Western world would say, the odd thing is really that those who were committed before the lockdown came, they're all fine. They've all stayed committed. Those who were perhaps a little on the fringe, um, well, we're pursuing them in love, but we're not quite sure what's happened there. We're a bit nervous. I think that would be true of some in our own church family. Well, Matthew 18 is, how do you operate as a church? It is, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' great sermon on the church. And we thought last time, well, you've got to pursue people in love. Uh, Christians must have the attitude of God the Father, chapter 18, verse 14. Your, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's like a shepherd who'll do, who recklessly pursue uh, church members to try and bring them back in to the church community. You've got to have that mindset. But it leads into this little passage today, verses 15 to 20. Actually, one of the ways you protect the church and one of the ways you ensure that they're securely tethered in, well-connected, even when the waves come, well, one of the ways you, is to confront them when there's significant sin. That's one of the ways you help someone not drift. Is when there's significant sin, you confront them. Now, it is crucial to see these verses that we look at tonight, 15 to 20, in their context. Because if you were here last night, really last time, uh, verses 1 to 14, uh, love is humble. And we'll see next time, verses 21 to the end, love forgives. And between those two, love confronts. But you, you, you do want to have those two surrounding it. Love, love is humble. That's your attitude. Uh, love forgives and is willing to do that. Love confronts is between those two. That context is enormously important. These verses could be a pretty blunt club otherwise. But I want to think this evening then, uh, how do you confront sin? Because that's what verses 15 to 20 tell us, that love confronts sin. How do you do that? Well, I want to work through it pretty carefully, but we'll look at it in these three ways. The motive is love, the process is slow, and the verdict is God's. Okay. The motive is love, the process is slow, and the verdict is God's. Let's work through them then. Uh, first, uh, verse 15, really, the motive is love. Verse 13, if your brother or sister, oh, now we have a decision straight away, uh, sins. When the Bible is written, uh, we've got numerous, numerous versions of uh, the um, uh, sort of original Greek documents. Some of them have just sin. Some of them have sin against you. So that's where you get the footnotes. Footnote See, some manuscripts have sins against you. I think that's most likely to be the case because of the question that Peter will ask in verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? So the fact that you're talking about 
There, verse 21, the brother or sister that sins against me, flows naturally that that's the question that's been already asked in verse 15. So verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you've won them over. Now, just a few things about that then. First, just be clear what the aim is. The aim when someone has wronged you is to win them over, not to make yourself feel better, not to demonstrate that, that you were in the right and they were in the wrong, not to self-justify, not to score points. Your objective is reconciliation. You want them won back into healthy Christian living. Well, how do you do about it? You go. Well, that's striking. If your brother or sister sins against you, go. Actually, that's a command. If someone sins against you in a significant way, you have an obligation to do something about it. Actually, go. Go to them and point out their fault. Uh, don't text them. Don't email them. Don't put a slightly grumpy series of um, emojis in a row, which can't quite work out what they mean. Um, actually, even Zoom isn't really very good because you can't pick up quite how someone's sensing it. Just go and have a face-to-face -face conversation. And go privately, just between the two of you. Don't broaden it out. You get a very similar sentiment to this in um, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You should restore them gently. Do it gently. Again, if you've worked your way through verses 1 to 14, you've humbled yourself, 18, 1 to 4, you've disciplined yourself, 6 to 9, and you've got the heart of the shepherd. When you've done those things, you might be okay at confronting someone's sin. When you've humbled yourself, you've disciplined yourself, and you have a heart like God's. You're a shepherd. There's not going to someone in anger. Okay, there's quite a difference there. Of course, the fact that this sin, if it keeps, if, if it doesn't change, might eventually be told to the whole church, reveals it is something significant, probably most likely in the flow of the chapter, something which causes a Christian to stumble. But just to be clear, this is not... Well, yes, uh, we heard Matthew 18 in church. And um, earlier in the week, I texted you, or I WhatsApped you, or I whatever, Snapchatted you, and you ghosted me. And so now I have come to confront you and bring you back into the church family, for you have ghosted me. Um, it's not that sort of small scale. It's clearly the, the, the way this goes to the whole church. It's something significant. And yet... If we were to ratchet this down a little bit to less significant offences, sins, how lovely if verse 15 was followed more often in the small things that annoy us about one another. So someone in church wrongs you. They don't take you seriously. They snub you, whatever it may be. You feel wronged. Verse 15 would say, you, you, you don't vent to someone else. 
you don't say, that man, Ben Sabjani, he's very rude, don't you find? Um, very uncaring, I ex in my experience. Sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> welcome back. Welcome back. Lovely to see you back. Um, uh, the, you go to them. How many issues would be resolved if we acted like this? And of course, if you go to someone, look, I was really upset when you no-showed the other night. Really upset, actually, how you were quite rude about me in front of others the other night. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. There's resolution. And no one else knows. And it's beautiful. It's done. In uh, David Cook, uh, Bible teacher, in his little commentary, he, put it, he wrote this. If we followed the direction laid down by the Lord Jesus in these verses... 80% of the pastoral issues I've dealt with over the last decades would not exist. I was reading the second edition. He said in the, he said footnote, in the sec, footnote to the second edition, a number of my friends have uh, rebuked me on this point and said, 80%, surely it's 90% or higher. In other words, so many things that go on in church, they are quite small. And we let them fester. And a friendship breaks. And you think, so are you falling out with her over what? Yeah, but I, don't, I shouldn't make the first move. Oh, guys, come on. Come on. A one little gentle conversation, it can mature the young, then cure the resentful. It can restore the wanderer. It can do great deeds. Just verse 15 alone. Okay, but the motive is love. That's the first thing, the motive is love, uh, verse 15. Secondly, then, the process is slow, verses 16 and 17. There are steps two, three, four in these uh, little verses. So sadly, then, the one-to-one the -one conversation doesn't work. It doesn't resolve the, the issue, and that's just true in life. So there are further steps that are taken, verse 16. But if they'll not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, if they still refuse, well, let's pause there, two or three witnesses. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, take two or three with you to hear the exchange because the involvement of others, well, it does a number of things. One, it makes the offended party think, is this serious? Is this serious enough that I'm gonna get two or three others involved and say, can you sort, help me sort this out? Or am I making a mountain of, out of a molehill? The offender, sinner. Well, if three people come to them and say, look, we've heard this, is that right? Because that's not good. Well, it makes them think, oh, I just thought they were being a bit precious. Oh, maybe this is a big deal. So it's sort of sanity check getting other people involved. It is also, I guess, it's thorough. There's no cover-up. It doesn't matter who this person is, who the offender, the sinner is. Elsewhere, 1 Timothy 5, Paul would say the same. Look, if an accusation comes against an elder in a church, take two or three witnesses and follow the same sort of process. Don't believe the gossip about them unless you've followed this process. Check the facts. Get them established. Don't allow rumors to spread out of control. But there's a beautiful openness here. We don't hide stuff. We address it in Jesus' church. 
That doesn't seem to work, the two or three. So verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, so it does appear that the two or three who have gone with them, they've also tried to persuade. If they still refuse to listen, here is stage three, tell it to the church, the whole church family. Golly. So again, it's got to be something significant here. This is not, you forgot my birthday, and I'm really upset because you're meant to be a good friend. You know, it, it is, I mean, that, that may, yeah, that's something to sort out interpersonally. But you don't bring that to the whole church family. Scott Fury forgot his wife's birthday. And now we need to tell the whole church. You don't do that. Uh, that would be a bit of uh, an overkill. Very unlikely. Very good husband. Um, so he tells me. Um, but we've taken a while to get to this point. I remember someone saying... Jesus would encourage us to keep the circle of those involved as small as possible for as long as possible. Again, how many people have been told about this offense at this stage? Well, there's the two parties involved and then two or three others. So, So maximum five. It's all kept quite small. You don't allow rumors to spread. But at this point, the church is told. And verse 17 Well, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is, you treat them as someone who's not a Christian. You treat them as an unbeliever. You say, we don't think you're a member in this church. But you still love them. Because strikingly throughout the Gospels, Jesus eats with tax collectors He eats with the pagans because he wants them to come into his kingdom. But it's also clear that they're not yet in his kingdom. Essentially, you're saying here, look, your behavior makes us think that you're not a Christian. But we want you to be a Christian. So come for dinner, but we're just not calling you a member of the church. It's a bit abstract, isn't it? Let me give you an example. We've not done this very often here. Let me give you one example, though. A a few years ago, a woman was having an extramarital affair. Her husband is obviously the one they're offended against, sinned against. Uh, It was him who uh, came and uh, told me. He had challenged her, of course, on the affair. You're having an affair. Yes, I am. You should stop it. No, I like him more than you, um, was essentially the tone of it. She had um, asked a couple of her friends you know, to get involved, a- another couple, another married couple who knew them. Look, can you go and talk to him? They did. Sorry, can, yeah, can, excuse me, he said, can you go and talk to her? Uh, they did. She said, yeah, but I'm having a great time. So, no, I like the new guy more than my husband. Sorry. And then it was brought to me, and I went with a couple of others from the congregation, Again, the response was the same. No, I'm still a Christian, uh, and I still want to come to church. I've got loads of friends at church, but I just don't want him, husband. He's boring, new bloke, exciting. Well, what do you do with that? You can't say, well, let's all just carry on then. You come to church, and your husband comes to church, you don't sit together, but you're in the same room, and everyone goes, they don't sit together very often. Yeah, we're not. You can't play let's pretend. So often, it was weeks, seemed appropriate in our setting, at the, a prayer meeting, we said, look, this is going on. One or two of you probably would have wondered. 
And so here's what we're saying about the, the, the woman in the uh, adulterous affair. The husband is very content for her still to come on a Sunday. That's his choice, I think. Uh, but he wants her to hear the gospel. So we're saying to her, do come on a Sunday. We are saying you, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. We won't let you. You're not going to come along to your midweek Bible study group, your discipleship group, uh, as normal and play let's pretend. That's inappropriate. But look, a member of staff is very happy to sit and read the Bible with you. Crucially, I think, for her, talking to her key friends and saying, look, of course, go out for dinner, go to the cinema with her, of course, don't cut her out. Of course, do those things socially. But when you meet up with her, at some point in the evening, you do need to say, when are you going back to your husband? You can't normalize this state of affairs because at the moment you're living like a non-Christian. And as far as we can tell, you, you, you have no hope of heaven the way you're behaving because it makes no sense. Now, wonderfully in that case, she did return to her husband and uh, we had a lovely service in church where they sort of renewed their vows to one another and uh, their marriage is in very good shape years down the line. To be honest, I think she was entirely ambivalent about what I, Matt Fuller, felt. But what her friends thought and how they related to her, that was crucial. In the end, she said, I do want a relationship with Jesus and I cherish my friendships and they're not normalized at the moment and it's all awkward and, and I want that more than I want new bloke. Okay, let's work at the marriage. And that's why you need the whole church involved at some point. Look, the motive is slow, excuse me, the motive is love, the process is slow. Uh, briefly, um, last then, verses 19 and 20, the verdict is God's. Slightly tricky verses. What Jesus is essentially saying, verses 19 and 20, is that when the church family says to someone, you are outside of the congregation, then it is declaring God's verdict. These verses, I think, are here just to strengthen our resolve to do this. Verse 19, again, truly I tell you, excuse me, verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I think the footnote is better just because of the tense of the verbs in the original Greek. Forgive me for being nerdy, but... So I think it's, it is more accurate to read it Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, it's not that the church persuades God to change his mind here, but that the church is declaring God's verdict upon the errant person, the, the sinner. So it's very similar to Matthew 16, verse 19. Peter, the first believer in Jesus, you're the Messiah. Yes, Peter, yes, you've got it. And I give to you uh, the keys of the kingdom and you can bind and loose people. That is your teaching, which is that I'm the Messiah, that will let people free. It's different from the Pharisees' teaching, which locks people up. Jesus says that, Matthew 23, verse 13, Luke 11, 52. That the Pharisees, they bind people up. They lock people out of the kingdom because they say, well, if you're very moral, you can get in. Whereas, Peter, you know the truth. It's trusting in me. 
that gets you into the kingdom of Jesus. Little abstract. A couple of years ago, I remember reading um, uh, one school. It was a London school. Uh, um, do you remember when kids used to sit exams? Do you remember that? At school? Crazy, huh? Um, it was back in those days where people used to sit exams and some even failed them. <gasps> um, but uh, uh, but at one London school at, at A-level, the teacher, uh, RE teacher, taught the wrong syllabus. And so every child in the sixth form failed it. Uh, and he was not promoted. In fact, he was sacked. I mean, that's a pretty devastating... Um, if you're a teacher, just have a double check, all right? Uh, you got your syllabus straight, because that's quite a boo-boo uh, to make if you're the head of department. So, you know, they, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were teaching the wrong thing, so no one could get into heaven. Jesus says, no, teach the truth that gets you into heaven. And here, it's the same. Look, if a church is operating healthily and declares these people are in and these people are out, that's so helpful. That's the right syllabus. That's giving people the truth. And you need to do that. Verse 19 is the same point, really. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. It's the minimum two or three witnesses from verse 18 when they come together and say, this is what we think, Lord. Even if you only have a small gathering, Better if it's the whole church. This is what we think, that this person is outside the kingdom of God. Can you impress that truth upon them? He will. That's the prayer. Now, what do you, let's finish there. What do you make of that? In one sense, this whole process is meant to be a cold bucket of water over someone who's about to be, do something very daft. It's a a wake-up to someone who is wandering away from Jesus. It's part of the actions of a shepherd who loves people and therefore at time will shock them to get them to come back. It's love. Because love confronts sin. It doesn't just pretend. So the motive is love, the attitude is humility, the process is slow, the verdict is God's. Let me just give you three questions as we finish. Do you love people enough to do this personally? To confront them? Once you've got your own humility sorted out, once you know you've got the heart of a shepherd, or trying to be, do you love people enough to confront them? Secondly, do you think as a church we love people enough to do this? And I guess the third question that strikes me is, are you connected enough into church to feel the pain of this if this happened to you? Would this be a wrench if you were on the receiving end of this process? And if not, probably not connected in as well as Jesus would expect. But here is the work of the shepherd. It's one of the ways he loves, in that he confronts. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we're relieved. Relieved that in a sermon in Matthew 18 on the church, 
that you want to establish humility in people, discipline in people, a, a shepherd's heart in people before there's any talk of confronting sin. We know some of us are far too zealous to confront sin in others. Some of us are far too passive and would let anything go. But Father, would we love people enough? Would we pursue them with love in such a way that sometimes we confront their sin for their good? to bring them back into the kingdom of the most glorious shepherd, the Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.